Hey everyone, I'm Alex Cantor. And I'm Lily Rosenthal. Welcome to our podcast, Hot Pastrami. We are coming to you from our favorite booth at Cantor's Deli here in LA. We're going to invite some of our friends to join us for a chat over some matzo ball soup and pastrami sandwiches. So join us for new episodes of Hot Pastrami every week on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, YouTube, or wherever you listen to podcasts. See you soon. Bye. Hey everybody, welcome to the Sharp Tongue Podcast. I'm your girl, Jessie Mae Peluso. How you doing? How you living? How you loving? How you learning? It's all about that. It's all about living, loving, and learning. I I sound like this because I just got back from a weekend with my sister in West Palm Beach where the state bird is a sugar daddy. So it was a great time. <laughs> Florida's really weird. You're the weirdest state in the world. I'm convinced of it. You guys, you should be a country. At this point, the fact that Texas and Florida aren't a country is bewildering. True bewilderment. I I had a great time. Thanks to everybody who came out to the 420 show at the West Palm Beach Improv. We had a great time. Stonesy Magonesy's on stage. That's me. That's not a band. It's not like a a, a, a stoned tribute band. It's just me. I'm Stonesy Magonesy. <laughs> Oh, Stonesy McGonesy was there. Yeah, it's just me. I really appreciate you guys coming out. If you want to watch the video to this podcast, it will be available on YouTube. You go to youtube.com forward slash Jesse May Peluso and you'll be able to watch the video as well as other clips. And if you guys want exclusive content, you just go to my fan page, patreon.com forward slash Jesse May Peluso and you can get yourself some exclusive content. We got content for you and it's exclusivo. I was in the air when the mask mandate was decided to not be enforced by the TSA. TSA decided to no longer enforce the mask mandate. And I was on a plane and read this and I kind of, (laughs) you know, like, you, you put your toe in the lake and then you put your toe back up on the dock and then you put your toe in the lake and you put your toe back up on the dock. That's what I was doing with my mask because I wasn't sure if this was like a real story or not because it feels like it's been so long since we've been able to have our faces out on airplanes. And then when I landed in Atlanta, half that airport was just free balling. They were free balling. They were like, fuck, fuck this. Not that everybody in Atlanta sounds like hillbillies, but we're not doing this no more. We're going to have our faces out in the airport. God damn it. And I, you know, I also did the face mask on face mask off. Cause I still wasn't sure, but I'm so fucking done. I'm so fucking done. You guys, let's just, please. Can we, can we move on with our lives? Can we move past it? Can we move past the mask? And can you stop taking a little Liberty of feeling like you have some authority? And yelling at people who don't have their masks on, it's, it just, we, we got to move on. Take your ginkgo biloba, take your vitamin C, your vitamin D, get some sleep. Don't eat like a fucking asshole and exercise. Okay? For the very few who have extenuating circumstances, who have very serious pre-existing conditions and have comorbidities and all that stuff, they're excluded from this rant. This is for you, the rest of you who, you know, woe is me. The woe is me woke motherfuckers. 
Just chill the fuck out. Everybody just chill the fuck out. (laughs) Oh my gosh. But West Palm Beach was a good time. Very weird. Very weird people. Florida's weird AF. I was able to reconnect with a couple friends. A couple friends I made at the UPW Tony Robbins event, Unleash the Power from Within event. Um, my dear friend Pete Apozzato. Hey. And I got to reconnect with the Robbins. Uh, Sage was kind enough to welcome me into her home, and we had a wonderful visit and a great chat. A, a chat about the guest who is on the podcast this week. But before we get into that, I would like to thank the sponsor for this week, Nutriful. I am so, 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 so excited about trying Nutriful. I have to be really honest. I, you guys know, I I love health food stuff. I love supplements. I love whatever I can implement into my regimen that is something that's going to help sleep or help feel energized and not jittery like some sort of crackhead. And I've always struggled to find a good vitamin, to find a good multivitamin, just because it's like how much of it is really bioavailable? Is it a fad? You know, is there just some teenager making this in his mom's basement? All those things come to my mind. But the reality is with Nutrafol, I have heard wonderful things. And actually, it's really funny. My cousin had a jar of it on her counter. And I was like, ooh, I've heard of this. She's like, yeah, it's great. And she's taking uh, the the women's, for women over 35. And this is, I'm not throwing her under the bus. I mean, she knows she's 35. But th- and there's no shame in being over 35, by the way. Can we stop? One thing I want to stop doing is when people go, oh, she looks good for 40. Motherfucker, 40's not old. Okay. In the scheme of existence, we don't know what happens beyond this physical life. 40's not old. How about you just say she looks good for her age? Don't say that at all. How about you just say she looks good? Why has it got to be for her age? But the reality is 30 million women are impacted by weakened or thinning hair. And this happens as we age. That's a reality of aging. And if you're among them, you know you're not alone and there's a solution that you can trust to deliver real results. (laughs) What are results? I just said that word so confidently. This is what happens when I don't have coffee. A solution you can trust to deliver real results. And I've heard this about Nutrafol. I've spoke to girls who've taken this before and to my cousin. Millions of Americans are experiencing thinning hair. And it's more common. It's it's normal. But it's not openly talked about, especially amongst women. It, there's a shame factor involved because for some reason we have to have this long, luxurious, thick, flowing hair at all times. And going through it can probably feel really lonely and frustrating And it's time to change the conversation. Join the thousands of women who are standing up for their strands with Nutrafol. It's the number one dermatologist recommended hair growth supplement clinically shown to improve your hair growth, thickness, and visible scalp coverage. That's what I'm here for. I am here for that visible scalp coverage. I want my scalp friggin' covered. Cover it up. I do want it thick. (laughs) Give it to me thick. This is the only place where I really want it. 
well, you guys know this isn't the only place I like it thick, but this is a, a very important place to have it thick. It supports natural, healthy hair growth from within by targeting the five root causes of thinning. Are you ready? Get a pen and paper and jot this down. Stress, hormones, environment, nutrition, and metabolism through whole body health. This is why this supplement is different than the rest. It's all about that whole body health. It's all about tackling it from all angles. They have a very unique formula to support women throughout all stages of life, including postpartum and menopause. And each formula is physician formulated using natural drug-free medical grade ingredients in consistently effective doses. So you get the most reliable results. Um, in a clinical study, 86% of women reported improved hair growth. 80 Six percent. You guys don't waste any more time. Okay, give it a try. You're going to be getting some wonderful vitamins as well. See why 3000 top doctors and stylists are recommending Nutrafol as an effective, high quality solution for healthier hair. Let it flow. Let it flow. You can grow thicker and healthier hair and support our show by going to Nutrafol.com and using promo code SHARP to save $15 on your first month supply. This is the best offer anywhere and is available only to U.S. customers for a limited time. Plus, free shipping on every order. You get $15 off at Nutrafol.com. That's Nutrafol, N-U-T-R-A. F-O-L.com and use promo code SHARP, S-H-A-R-P. And let me know, please do before and after photos for me. Whoever's going to do this, send me your before and after photos. I want to see them. I'm going to share them. I'm going to be taking Nutrafol myself. I'm so honestly so freaking excited to have this product on the show. And thank you guys so much. And ladies, there is a solution for that gorgeous hair of yours. And Nutrafol is your solution, and I, I I am very excited for you guys to try this product. Truthfully, truthfully. Well, speaking of the truth, that brings me to this week's guest on the Sharp Tongue Podcast. This is a gentleman I have known for years, and it's so wild the way paths can cross, and we get into that on the podcast, but he is a criminal justice advocate He's a litigation advisor and the founder and president of Dubin Research and Consulting, uh, an advisory firm located in New York City. He is also the first ambassador of the Innocence Project, which is a nonprofit legal organization formed to help those who have been wrongly accused of crimes they did not commit. He is just a very interesting human being to talk to, and he has devoted his life to helping others, and I think that's pretty freaking cool. And I hope you guys enjoy this week's episode with my guest, Mr. Josh Dubin. Sharp Tongue Podcast. Beep, 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 beep. You're listening to the Sharp Tongue Podcast. I'm your host, Jesse May Jessie. Peluso. It's a personal look. Well, it's not really a look because it's a podcast. I'm already fucking this up. This is kind of like a verbal comedy diary, a deep look into the crevices of my mind. It's going to get dirty. You might cry. You'll probably laugh. Hopefully you'll laugh. The whole point is for you to laugh, but you also might cry. I talk about my family. I talk about farts. farts. I talk about love, loss, 
comedy, how hard it is to make it in this biz. I'm a fucking professional. Each week it's something different. Sometimes I have a guest host. Sometimes it's going to be a movie companion episode. Sometimes I just ramble about the bullshit I dealt with the week before. You never know what you're going to get. It's raw, uncut, and funny. It's me. (laughs) Hi, Josh. Welcome to the podcast. Hey, Hey, Jesse May. How are you? Good to be here. Man, I'm surviving. I'm good. I was... on the treadmill, well, stairmaster, because treadmills are annoying these days to me. They're boring. That's a humble brag about me working out. Anywho, I was on the stairmaster listening to your episode with Rogan, doing a little due diligence because I know a little bit about what you're doing and the work you're doing. But why don't you tell people how we know each other and how you know Rogan so that there's some understanding of the connection of us all? It's weird because I was I was on the treadmill. <laughs> <laughs> no shit, right before this. You were good. Trying to yeah, trying to yeah, that was a not so subtle brag. That's why I couldn't come earlier. Oh, perfect. Um, I appreciate the uh, dedication to your health. Um That's why I couldn't come earlier. So, in any event, I was trying to figure out the connection. So what, what is the connection? It's like um, worlds colliding and the, and the earth shrinking. Yeah, it is kind of like that. Well, we just recently realized, I just recently realized that you knew Rogan because you had reached out um, recently just to say hello and you were congratulating me, which is really kind of you. And then I was like, wait, how do you know Rogan? How are you friends with Rogan? All right, so here's the deal. So what what happened was I used to work, I used to have my office downtown in Tribeca in 99 Hudson Street. And I used to go to this bar (laughs) after work every now and then to have a drink. And sometimes during the day, they had these like, these like wicked little sandwiches, right? Oh, fucking little Italian sandwiches, boy. Woo! Little, little, little Italian panini. Little so I went, in, I, I went in there one day and um, this like sassy chick that used to work at night was like <laughs> waiting tables and like, what the fuck do you want? What do you want? And I was like, fuck is this girl? And I was in there and I, and I was in there with Lennox Lewis, who I manage. And she, this girl was acting like she didn't give a fuck that the heavyweight champion of the world was in there. (laughs) And I was like, and it was at a time when he was like, still had his dreads and people around would be like, Oh my God. Ah." And, and I was like, Oh, I really like that. And then at one point she's like, here, here, jerk off. Will you take a picture of me and him? And I took a picture and, uh, and that sassy chick was was this comedian, and and it was weird. So it was, oh my god! <laughs> Look yeah. at the bangs! Look at my bangs! <laughs> <laughs> I look like a soccer mom. I look fifty. So it's crazy because I we knew each other, but I was just some dick that would come into the bar. You were not and- a dick. No, 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 no. But I would come in after work every now and then. And I remember like we would chat from time to time and you were, you know, you would be doing five minutes here and there. And then at one point you were like, check out, you know, I remember this bit that I I used to love. 
was like your you had this bit about models and and that's a model i forget what it oh, was oh yeah it was i'm like, the model <laughs> that's right everyone in new york is a model and i was like no you're so, not bitch. you just need a sandwich i i used to be like this chick could really make it because you you know used to work the bar and all these dudes were like fuck man you know like you'd hear like guys over over like you know through the side of your whiskey like fucking chick man she fucking likes me bro she just told me a joke i'd be like yeah <laughs> Like a dork. She's a stand-up comedian and she's like not running game on you. She's testing out her material. <laughs> I was all day, every day, <laughs> constantly. So so like every now and then it would happen and you'd be I'd be like, and you and and Jesse May would be like like that. And then all <laughs> and then the way the way life works, poof, you were gone one day, I was gone one day, I moved my office and uh you were always more one of the more respectful individuals that when you came in, I remember we always would have a good conversation. We, you weren't like the stereotypical, you know, just guy that would come in and shoot his shot or just be gross or whatever it was, whatever the cornucopia yeah. of, of clientele that I had there happened to be. We always had good conversations. I do remember yeah. that. Yeah. And, and, um, I remember because my brother's a performer and I remember saying, yo, this girl has got, got a shot, you know, she's like super funny and then whatever life happens. So I remember um, Lennox coming in that day and I remember not knowing who he was, but realizing he was someone because, you know, the way the bar was the, you know, it was all windows. So people walking in the street could see right in and, and the third person that like walked by and like pointed through the window, I was like, all right, who the fuck is this guy? And do you remember I came over to you guys and I go, who the fuck are you? Next. <laughs> I remember that. And he wouldn't tell me. He wouldn't, he didn't yeah. tell me. He's like, I'm not going to tell you. And, and he loved, he loved the attention. <laughs> he, was still, so he, nice. still he really yeah. was so nice. And he took photos with a couple that was in there. I do remember that. And, never told me who he was. I had to find out. And I don't even think Google was that, you know, used that commonly back then. But I think there was a Google moment where I was just like tall, black, British, large man. <laughs> it was literally just all the physical attributes that I could type in. And he came up. It was just like <laughs> Lennox Lewis. <laughs> Oh must God. be a tennis must be a tennis player. Yeah. <laughs> um, so so then getting getting back to your question, how did how did oh so then you uh, so the the boxing world obviously there's a your circles are crossing over with Rogan because of that connection and you and him uh, knew each other through that mutual world. Wasn't that how you guys sort of came yes, to know each so, other? Yeah, so I managed like in my other life, like a side gig, I managed Lennox and Andre Ward and a bunch of, you know, really accomplished fighters. And Joe has had them both on as guests. And he's real passionate about social justice causes, right? And he's just, if you know Joe, and a lot of people that think they know him don't and judge him anyways, yep. he's got the, he's got a deep heart. He does. Um, he cares deeply 
And he was talking to both Lennox and Andre, apparently, um, you know, and, and then found out that the same person managed them. And then he, he was talking to Andre in a different context about, you know, this guy that does this civil rights work and, and wrongful conviction work. He's like, so that guy has the same name as your manager? And he's like, no, it's the same person. And he's like, oh, I'd love to speak to this guy. So Andre and Lennox were like, yo, Joe would love to, to chat with you. And I was, I was like, cool, I'd love to chat with him. And uh, I forget which one of them was like, do you mind if we give him your number? And I was like, no, that would be, be dope. And uh, How long ago was this? It was probably about two years ago. Mm. And then uh, he just texted me one day. He's like, hey, can you chat? And I was like, fine. And he called me and we talked for like an hour. Yeah. And, and um, about boxing, wrongful convictions. And he's like, do you want to talk some more? And I was like, sure. Call me anytime. And he's like, no, do you want to talk like on my show? And I was like, He's like, no, bro, okay. brush your hair, brush your teeth and comb your eyebrows. You're going to, millions of people are going to about to, are about to be introduced. Yeah. To yeah. And I, and I was like, I was very, um, I mean, I love him. I was a fan of his comedy, not a huge fan. Um, I hadn't watched a ton of it, but, I, and I didn't know, a, you know, like I'm a boxing dude. Yeah. I know that the MMA is super popular. Love it, respect it. And when I went out there and we did the show, you know, I, I really did not, I underestimated his reach. Yeah. Because all of a sudden people started blowing me up, recognizing me. And then um, we just, we hit it off on an existential level that um, I think he does with a lot of folks, but he was like, I want you back. And then I went back and then he's like, why don't we do this every quarter? Wow. Because I was, I was working on two cases that I was starting to get traction on. And, um, I knew that the district attorney was paying attention because the third time I was on, he, or the second time I was on, he wanted to use the show as a platform to get the word out about the work I do. The district attorney and or Joe? Joe did. Joe. Okay. Yeah. And it was an amazing offer to use his platform to do that because his reach is like, you know, there's all kinds of numbers out there. It's in the many tens, if not. It's, it's, mul million, it's multiple millions of people that he reaches in also upper echelon people who are influential and people who I would think were like are and were and can be instrumental in your line of work and what you're doing and what you're uh, trying to do and have done. It's all about the yeah, eyeballs so, and the ears listening. Yeah. So at the time he was like, I'd love to tell stories about some of your cases that you're working on and get some traction in those cases. And I was like, if you're, if you're offering this is not an arm you're going to have to twist because pressure breaks pipes in what we do. Can we talk about that? Because um, I was listening to your episode and also, you know, I have a couple different friends and family members who are not involved in the criminal justice system, but one of my best friends went to Cardoza where I think you're, you have a connection with. Can we talk first about the public pressure 
and how that influences cases. Cause I feel like that's a big thing here. Cause it's essentially what we're talking about. Yeah. So, you know, any prosecutor, district attorney, governor, um, will tell you they don't pay attention to what the public is saying. This is all about justice and getting it right. Total bullshit. Um, they do care. And when I say pressure breaks pipes, you know, Rodney Reed was a huge case. There was like a cause celeb. A lot of people got behind that execution was stopped because so many celebrities and, you know, influential people started beating the drum to say that this was wrong. And we can go through a list of people that whose executions have been stopped because a governor finally yields to the public pressure. So in state cases, district attorneys are no different. Um, and I think that, you know, what happened in, she'll never admit it, but the district attorney in Douglas County, just for instance, there were these, this is Douglas County, Kansas. Jesus. And here, here's Sorry, how it already I knew sounds she, terrible. Here, here's how I knew she was paying attention because I was working on the case of these two young black men who had been, um, in my mind, wrongfully accused and one of them convicted of crimes they didn't commit. One of them was named Albert Wilson. There's this very iconic photo of him in a bow tie when he got sentenced that sort of made its rounds around the internet and then sort of like caught fire because it was a black man accused by a white girl of sexual assault. And um, there was no physical evidence tying him to it. The timeline was impossible. Um, and I ended up finding out that the uh, attorney that was appointed to represent him basically did next to nothing. I mean, there were like all of these text messages in her phone that he had in his possession, which completely contradicted the story that she told to the state's expert. And then you had this, this other guy who was accused of murder with no motive, no real physical evidence tying him to it. But this, this woman's husband who had been beating the shit out of her, who they, the police strongly suspected did it, who threatened her life, who, whose hair was in her dead hand. And, you know, I knew that they were both innocent. And I, when she ran for office, is right around the time I got these cases. And I do them all pro bono. I do them all for free. And, you know, I, she, she ran on a platform that if I get elected, I will pay close attention to these two cases. Um, and then, you know, when she got into office, she sang a slightly different tune. Mm. And she was very, in my opinion, in my opinion, she was very erratic in how she was dealing with me. So why do you one, think that was? Um, man, I wish I could psychoanalyze people, let alone prosecutors. Well, what I just would be think her intention? She, to, like, what would make her so erratic? Like, do, do you think you like she felt challenged by you? I mean. Maybe I charge hard sometimes, you know, and I'm not like a typical, I don't look or act like a lot of attorneys. I no think. way. I, you look like I the guy like... that attorneys represent. <laughs> <laughs> Show everyone your arms so they can see what I'm oh, talking about. Man. Show them your fucking sleeve. Oh, no, I don't want to make it about me. 
but it's funny. The other day, my my guy in Brooklyn who owns Lucali, which is like an iconic pizza restaurant. <laughs> I went over there the other day, and he and he took a screenshot and sent this to me because I needed a I needed a place to do a meeting, right? And he's like, lock, put the lock on the door when you leave because I had just left the dentist. And he sends me this text. Yo, Mark, I just want to make sure everything's okay. I seen a guy in there. This is in Carroll Garden. I seen a guy in there that I, ne- that I never seen during the day sitting where Anthony used to sit. So he writes back to him. It's okay, sir. It's my attorney. He writes back, you got a tough looking attorney. That's good. He's not I was wrong. like, that made... That made my fucking day. You do look tough. So, I mean, no, but I'm I'm a pussycat. But I don't know. To answer your question, I don't know why she was erratic. I think district attorneys, even in small towns, have a tough job. I think that she was dealing with the the complainant. She called her the victim. I called her the complainant, and I don't take that lightly. I'm the father of two daughters, and somebody claims they were sexually assaulted. You know, I didn't see any evidence of it, but. I, I didn't want to engage in victim shaming. And I don't know, it was the weirdest fucking thing. Sometimes I'd be dealing with her and she'd be like, we're going to get this right. We're going to work through it. And I'd say, okay, well, you know, make an offer that maybe would be digestible to him to make the, you know, like a plea offer. Right. And then they'd come back and say, like, we want him to plead to a felony. And I'm like, what the fuck? There's no way he didn't do this. I've showed you compelling proof that he didn't. And it would be like, if you think, you know, you're you're just, you don't like a woman in power. And I'll tell you how it started. At the here, what happened is in the, at the height of the pandemic, I, I had to go to, to Lawrence, Kansas in a mask. I look like a, like a I, I didn't even have like the, the. Um, N95s? No, I didn't have the um, the fashion sensibility to wear a mask that matched like my suit. I was wearing a white mask. I looked like a fucking stormtrooper, <laughs> and and I was. It was like a mini trial showing why his lawyer didn't, you know, do a good job representing him. And the when the judge announced that she was throwing the case out, my client is on a Zoom like we are in jail. And he started to weep Mm. and I started to weep. And the judge said, you know, Mr. Dubin, if you want to come, if you want to do his uh, bail hearing, we're going to reset his bail. And the the district attorney, this woman said, we're not going to challenge it. Um, You know, and we're going to consider whether we're going to retry him. I said, no. And she said, do you want to appear over Zoom for his bail hearing? I said, no, I think I'm going to come in public. I want to hug my client. And she called me right after the hearing. I find that, I found that totally unacceptable and that you would want to say that you want to hug your client. And I, I said, whoa, 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 you got the wrong one. I, They're human we, beings. We could, yeah, I, was like, I was like, I think he's innocent and his conviction just got thrown out and I want to hug him. So she was acting erratic, but back. Back to the, this is like a stone conversation because we're like on four tangents off the tangent. So, and it very well might be one. No, it's connected. I've I've got us. I've got us. I'm holding us. I'm holding us close to shore. Because we were talking about like your, uh, you know, the public pressure, which does lead us to this conversation about a DA because 
What I don't understand, because it's not my industry, is I would think that the precedent and the the goal would be to try the case, try the people, and find out what actually happened instead of rushing to a verdict. Why, why is that so commonly uh, an occurrence in the justice system, to rush to a verdict? What is it about that? Is that to satisfy the public? Is that something that has to do with the way the system is? internally well, there's a lot of there's a lot of answers to that question but you have to start with the proposition that that institutional racism is a is not only a thing it's a big problem and if you're a black man or woman and you get accused of a crime in this country you are really fucked and i feel like all i'm doing is a very small drop in the bucket to try to you know, write that wrong. So, but I'll get back to that in a second, okay. because I think that it, a lot of that is just about how we're wired as human beings. I think a lot of prosecutors are, um, in more intent on winning and it's about a win or a loss yes. versus the truth. But so what happened is on one of Rogan's episodes, I'm going to answer the question now on one of Rogan's episodes, I was, trying to create awareness about both of these cases and about this DA. And I'm like, you know, look, I'm in the armpit of the, of the country. And I was like, I, I immediately caught myself and I said, you know what? That's a, a poor choice of words. I mean, I was saying it in the context where if you are a person of color and accused of a crime, especially there, it's the armpit. And I caught myself right away. So there, and I corrected it. And, it, and there came a time a few months later when I went to Lawrence, Kansas, and I sat, I sat in the police department, and they made a presentation to me about why they thought Ron Torres Washington was guilty. And um, my job was just to sit there and listen, and then I was going to come back and make a presentation and say, here's why you got it wrong. This is a different case, not Albert Wilson. This is a murder case, but the same district attorney. And there's cops, investigators, detectives, other people from the district attorney's office. So the head DA walks in and she made a show of it. And she goes, hello, Josh, welcome to the armpit. And, and I, I thought to myself, I fucking got to you. Now I got you because I, I, it was in that moment. I said, I'm going to, I'm going to. I'm going to win this case. I'm either going to convince them to dismiss it or I'm going to try it and get him off. So it was in that moment. And I told Joe, what we're doing is working. Yes. Because they, they ended up dismissing the charges and she felt the pressure. And, and I think that the more awareness, that's why I'm deeply indebted to you to even be interested because this isn't, you know, you have, like I was listening to an episode with Jojo Diaz and I've been listening, like I've become a <laughs> I'm fan. I'm all over of the, the place. I do everything. <laughs> I'm mean, everywhere from brain you, health to butt stuff. <laughs> yeah. I mean, and, or in Jojo's episode squirting. Yeah. So you are all over the place. I cover all the, that, the gamut of life. Uh, so I am, um, I'm deeply indebted to you because the more, the more we can get the word out, the you know, in different areas. So in other words, like, you know, Dave Chappelle is 
loves to hear about the cases and he's a boxing fan. Yep. So the so the intersection, now I'm gonna answer the first now I'm gonna bring now I'm gonna I'm gonna bring us real Full close circle. to shore. Okay. Full circle. I'm gonna home run it. <laughs> so some guy said that to me once when I was buying a condo. He's like, it all home runs right back to you. I don't know why. I like that though. It makes sense. Well, I get sports. I, hate, I hated it. So <laughs> he um so one day um I was at the Rogan said something and he, he he was like, that reminds me of something my, my friend Jesse May would say. And I was something like that, like after we were off the air. And I was like, I was like, Jesse May, who? He goes, Jesse May Peluso. And I was like, wait a second. Wait a fucking <laughs> second. So, so I was like, I, I, don't, I was like, I think I'm friends with that girl. I was like. So, no, we're not. So to then, clarify, so then, uh, please let the court. Please let the court be known that we are not friends. I'm just kidding. I'm totally kidding. Well, we're, we, we might be friends. No, we're friends. So I was like, um, wait a second. So I, on the way to the airport, was like, she made it. She did it. I was Googling you. I was like, oh, my God. She did fucking make it. Tattoo redo. She fucking blazing as a stand-up comedian. And I was like, this is fucking crazy. This is my girl. We used to, like, bullshit at the bar. I was so happy. And then Joe was like, oh, you got to check out her episode. We, we like, blaze and, like, have the funniest conversation. Oh, God, the last one was like, so silly. So he's like, he's like, she's such a dear friend of mine. He's like, yeah, I see you guys being friends. You're both tortured souls. <laughs> that fucker. That, that fucker. fucker. That fucker. So then we, so then we sent, when we made the connection, we, we sent him that picture and he, he like, like a couple nights later, he was like, that is so fucking crazy. It's so crazy. He's like the, the, like, the dots that got connected. So wild. So it really is. It was wild. But I'm also and, like, and, yeah, go ahead. Well, no, I was like, and then when we were like chatting on Instagram, she, I was like, this girl's going to think I'm some serial killer. And then you were, as soon as I reached out, I was like, do you remember me? She's like, yes, Lennox <laughs> or some shit yeah. like that. I was like, she remembered the guy that took the picture. I was like, yeah, you took the right. fucking photo. You're the photographer of that day. <laughs> Thank you very much. No, but I was going to say, I, I'm indebted to you because what you're doing, your work is so important. And I mean that genuinely because you're doing this pro bono. How, how the fuck can you do that? I'm, I'm, I'm dumbfounded by that. I know that that's a thing that can occur in the legal system where people work pro bono, but how are you actually financially able to do that? That's a trick question. I mean, I, I just don't from, know. I'm, all right. So I'm the, I'm, I'll preface it all by pretend saying, I'm a five-year-old. All right. I don't even need to pretend. No, <laughs> I'm, fucking with you. I'm, I, I'm the son of a, of a school teacher and a knock around Brooklyn salesman. I didn't come from shit, but like people that like two people that were genuinely fucked up, like most of us, but also were deeply caring mm-hmm. and like had, you know, like, um, like my mom was a school teacher and I remember feeling like this is, this is cool. I'd be 15, 16 and we would be out and people would come up to us and say, Hey, you taught my daughter. You really changed her life. Oh. 
and my dad was the type of guy that was like, I mean, you've seen his headshot. He was so twisted. Your dad used Mr. to do stand-up comedy, which is so yeah. fucking crazy. Oh yeah, Mister Excitement, Mr. LL. So he, but he was the kind of guy that like he would like went to Home Depot. I remember when I was in college and home for Thanksgiving, and my mom sent him out to get light bulbs, and he's a big pot smoker. And he would come come back. I love him. Comes back, and he's got these two young black dudes with him. And he's like, "Hey, uh, Karen, I found uh, these these young boys in the parking lot that was selling these electronics. They have they no have nowhere to go for Thanksgiving, so they're gonna spend it with us." So they would come. They came and have Thanksgiving. So I just came from like a wow a fam. That was like what I came from. So, um. I'm dodging your question. No, so not. I, I, I was. It's like how I, how I met Lennox. I started as a real young, as the the an alleged expert in jury selection. I had this really weird trajectory where I didn't want to be a lawyer or go to law school as a writer, and um, all I wanted to do was write. And but I guess like the little practical sliver of my brain that was like my mom going you know you need a fallback plan you know you have to be smart you know if it doesn't work out and i'm like all right so i convinced myself all right i can get a master's in creative writing that'll take me two years or i can get um a law degree and and oh that'll be good writing fodder there's this set of rules that people act and react within and um you know, but then I went and like the first fucking day, I was like, oh boy, I made a big mistake. To, like to I law knew school? Right Your first day? Oh my God. Oh my God. Where did I you was, go? I went to, to Nova. And um, there were there were people like, like I remember the second day I went to sit and some girl was like, you're in my seat. And I was like, oh, did they assign seats? And she's like, the Socratic method. They have to know where you're sitting. So, you, you know, every, and I was like, motherfucker, man. I, I, I made <laughs> I'm a out. mistake. I made it. So, uh, but I'm a Taurus. I'm stubborn. And I just stuck it out. So I got this lady that taught the psychology of jury selection. Mm, that's interesting. Took me, un, took me under her wing and taught me all this psychology. And she was like a, a neurotic Jewish mother on, you know, like, a little bit too much vodka and Xanax, but she was like a witch. She like really, <laughs> she, she could look at you, look in your eyes and see your soul. I think and you just described my aunt Carol. <laughs> she, her name was Carol. No, I'm just fucking. Oh man. No. I was like, no. what the fuck? So she took me under her wing and by my third year in law school, she would, she'd be like, it was so, it was so like dirty and secretive. She'd be like, all right, look, I'm sending you out to pick a jury. If they don't ask you if you're in law school, don't tell them. You know what you're doing. Here's what you're looking for. And I was picking juries in law school. So by the time I got out of law school, I had already picked like almost 40 juries, 37 juries. And what's and that like process? Little, how do you? Little cases. How you do know, you pick a jury? At, you ask questions and people lie to you. <laughs> <laughs> and then you base whether or not you want to knock people off on their answers, but also what their occupation is, things that have happened to them that might relate to the case. And you make a decision based on 
you know, whether or not you want them on the jury. So what happened was um, I'm, I was born in New York. We moved to Florida. I went back to New York because I wanted to write. And um, when I was in New York, I met this guy, Jerry Lefcourt, who was, I was working for a company doing jury selection. And I met this guy who I had known about. He was like this civil rights hero named Jerry Lefcourt. He represented Abby Hoffman and Afeni Shakur. And he, the, he was the guy that did the Panther 21 trial. And he was like 27 when he did it. Wow. And I, w- I was like 25. And he hired me to work with him on this case. And, and it was like the who's who of the criminal defense bar. And there was a bunch of defendants. And I helped pick the jury and they all got acquitted and they blamed some of that on me, which, and then I started to get passed around this like real exclusive, um, like club of famous criminal defense attorneys. And I had to lie about my age a lot. Cause they were all older. All older. And so Barry Sheck, who's the co-founder of the innocence project, you know, which was formed called- at Cardoza right? Which was formed at Cardoza. Because my one of my best friends went to Cardoza for family law. Now, you could keep putting an A on the end of it. It I won't say change Cardoza the fact. All the time. Cardoza. It won't change the fact Cardoza? that it's Cardoza. Cardoza. Cardoza would be the, the um, <laughs> if it was a, a female Spanish woman. Thank you. And her name was Cardoza. La Cardoza. <laughs> yeah. So, so the guy was just like, uh, he was just like some character on tv from the oj trial so he called me one day and was like hey i hear you like this whiz on jury selection call me back and i never called him back because i thought it was my brother like playing a joke on me because we used to watch him in college on tv at the oj trial so long story short i ended up working with him a lot and um that was why i was down on hudson street because he had a civil rights firm down there in addition to the Innocence Project. And, um, you know, I got lo- the the short answer to your very short question, and it made me uncomfortable because I don't like talking about my finances, is that- I totally understand I got, that. Yeah, I got um, very lucky and leveraged that luck where I think common sense and street smarts go a long way, mm-hmm. and they especially go a long way uh, in the legal community. So I started this firm when I was 27 or 26, where it was like trot lawyers, psychologists, and graphic designers. And we did all things that a jury would see or hear. We were like expert consultants on information design, mock trials, um, how to structure your argument. And I ended up having this criminal defense side of it, but I also worked on big commercial civil cases. So I grew it from me on my couch to we have like 42 employees now. So, and I had a lot of success. It's my 21st year having the firm, wow. which is why I, I left Hudson Street and moved the office of Soho. And um, I had enough success where I was like, I want to do, instead of it being 20% or 10% of my time, I want to do more. Mm. And it's like, it's like a drug. Like you don't, 
like I've said this before, I think I've said it to Joe. I don't, I don't, uh, I don't even know how to articulate when you help like restore someone. Oh my gosh. And the first time I was a part of that process and, you know, walk someone off a death row and, and restore their life, you know, I don't, you know, I, I'm a crier, so I can start crying. Me too. And, and you, you get the human, um, the human tragedy that these prosecutions leave in their wake, even for people that did make mistakes. But if you're wrongfully convicted, Oof. you there's a lot of research um, out there about how much more... Um, damage is done to you from a psychiatric standpoint if you serve time as an innocent person and you know i just the the short answer to your short question is i got i was in a financial position and did well enough in business where i just said you know what i want to dedicate as much of my life to helping people this way as i can and you know i um yeah that that's the answer that's just I'm sure you've heard it so many times, but it's, it's so beautiful what you do. It really is. You're giving someone their life and I can't even imagine that feeling of the moment where that happens, where a sentence is, you know, completely exonerated or reversed. And, you know, a question comes up in my mind where what what happens and how what kind of help if any do you provide or is there in the system for these individuals who were in jail and did serve time wrongfully accused to reacclimate to society is there an installation for them is there a place for them to go or is there a service provided by you guys or somebody else to help them with their psychological sort of barnacles that they've acquired through time serving time yeah there is i mean and i should say that you know sometimes like i get the public facing accolades you know it takes like it takes like uh i I feel like fuck hillary clinton got got the 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 credit for it takes a village right i don't know if she even came up did she i don't want to i don't want to say it but it takes there's like the people that i've met that have dedicated their lives to this work that don't get the praise. You know, I have met some of the most amazing um, people doing this work. A lot of them women who are just forces um, that, um, like I said, like I have this, I have the gift and burden of being able to relate to people in a certain way, I think. And that is why a lot of these men and women that are wrongfully accused end up being more comfortable with me being like the lead and out in front. But there are so many people that get it to the point where the case gets to me. Um, And yeah, the answer is there are services. And, you know, I actually started when I started like volunteering at the Innocence Project, I was doing like assimilation when people were coming out mm. and just being there for them with yeah. a social worker. Um, so yeah, there's a, a you know the, 
the EJI, the Equal Justice Initiative down in with Brian Stevenson, the Innocence Project, all of, you know, there are Innocence Projects now all over the country um, that are sort of like satellites of the, the, of the nerve center in New York. And they all have these, they have social workers, they have re-entry programs, but it's never enough. Yeah. Um, and the more support we can get and, you know, people that will contribute time um, and, and you know, resources. Money is always good. Yeah, re- or just resources, we can never get enough of it because the one constant is that whether you served, you know, 20 years or 27 years or four years for something you didn't do, the damage is is there. It's irreversible. It is uh, on on a level that can't be articulated, and different human beings react differently to it. You know, um, but you know, you ruin a you ruin a human life for good when you do this. And that, and, and that goes back to a question you asked earlier is why do you think there's such a rush? Um, you only hear these stories after people have heard, after the damage has been done. Right. Right. And it's like, I always have the same question is like, I think, unfortunately, we are hardwired as human beings to want to assume guilt than presume innocence well it's probably why negative news flows more freely than something positive it's got to be something weirdly innate in our you know archaic brains something very dark in our brains to want that we want to tear other people down because of our insecurities i gotta tell you that is what attracted me to joe as a human being Mm. um because he's i don't want to make this like a, a joe rogan um you know, love fest. fest. It's fine. He can use, but, he could use no, a little but, promo. Well, he can. Yeah, Struggling. Um, <laughs> so he, um, it's, it's rare to find someone that roots for other human beings to do well. Yes. And he does. And he genuinely does that. He sure does. That's the greatest so, thing about it. he's selfless and his ego is completely in check. It really is. I mean, we all have a little bit of ego, but he's, he genuinely wants people to do well. And if, if there was a little bit, you know, people on the left, like, fuck with me about going on that show. I'm like, man, if you had a little bit more of what that cat had, you would be in a better spot. Like, I catch a bunch of shit for, like, I went and had dinner with Donald Trump while he was president a week before the Capitol riot. Mm-hmm. And we, I saved the fucking guy's life. We got clemency for a guy that had done close to... 35 years on a bullshit drug crime. Oh my God. And yeah. 35 and, fucking and, years. Yeah. And, and you know what? I apologize for not a second of sitting there and suffering through that dinner at Mar-a-Lago. I leveraged a connection I had. And, you know, if we could do more of that and sit down at the, you know, like people were, were saying to me, I went on my last episode on Rogan was right in the vortex of this whole n-word controversy and i said you know i'm not this whole cancel bullshit is why we're we are where we are i know that guy's i know that guy's heart i'm gonna sit with him and we're gonna have a conversation about race 
in the justice system. And that's what we did. And I can't tell you how many cops, prosecutors, um, MMA fans have reached out to me. Cops, please come to our department and teach us better about racial oh my sensitivity. Gosh. Yeah, yeah. So people get I'd triggered like- by words, and it, the triggers are such distractions. And you know, I always say, like, if if you're getting triggered, there's something to be healed. So you know, take that opportunity to figure out and work on yourself because we. We have way too many real things going on in society, like people who are wrongfully accused serving 35 fucking years, which ruins an individual's life and a family's life and, you know, all these other people around them. Like, let's let's really focus on helping people and improving their lives. And if you're triggered by something, there's a ton of therapy resources out there. And more often than not, when people are triggered, and this is what's going on with with cancel culture, it's because there's something unhealed in them. It's a wonderful opportunity for you to it's, um, fix yourself a little bit more. I got to tell you, like, I, I'm personally going through some awful shit right now. Yes. And when you go through, when you go through um, therapy even for people that haven't been through that, I couldn't agree with you more. It forces you to stare yourself in the mirror in a way that you otherwise wouldn't. And, and this whole, um, we're a mess as a civilization right now because I see like one tiny reaction to just something I'm doing and I'm just dust. I'm just you know, and you're I'm just like a pro bono a, civil rights attorney. Fuck you, yeah. dude. Yeah, I'm Fuck a, off. yeah, but I'm all, also just like a grain of sand and like, uh, you know, but I'm thinking like, so like this guy, I met this, um, this wonderful human being who I, if I had the attitude that people have towards me for being close with him, then it's, I, I in my mind, I've had to go from fuck off to, you know what, I pity you and I'm going to show you different. Mm. So watch this. So watch this. This, the guy is the chairman of Marvel. His name is Ike Perlmutter. The least likely acquaintance I would have. He's accused of, of a crime in uh, Palm Beach. He's a billionaire many times over. He's best friends with Donald Trump. Him and his wife have no kids. They just, all he does is play tennis and be the chairman of Marvel and feed his fish. He loves fish. He gets into a, like a, like a, an episode of Curb Your Enthusiasm gone so <laughs> off the rails and descends into like the depths of hell that we could have a five hour podcast. But the, the crux of it is that he is accused. He gets into a dispute with this guy in his, it's like Boca del Vista. It's like he gets into a dispute with this guy over the tennis pro. Ike loves the tennis pro. It's like an old friend of his. She's a single mother. He helps her. He's philanthropic when no one's looking. He helps put her kid through college. That's real and shit. Some, yeah, real shit. So some other guy moves into the community and starts causing problems about her. And, you know, that guy, and so Ike stands up for her. This is my friend, don't fuck with her kind of thing. And it explodes it like some 
board meeting that would have been like a great Seinfeld scene. But he, so about a year later, the guy that was causing problems starts getting hate mail sent to the community. And it's anonymous hate mail and it's being, it's, it's like uh, accusing this guy of being a murderer and a child molester. And it's using like Hebrew and Yiddish slang and it has like stars of David on it. And so naturally he thinks the Israeli that I got into an argument with, Ike Perlmutter, must be behind it. So he steals his DNA and steals his wife's DNA, okay, and has it tested without their permission. And they get investigated by the Palm Beach Police Department. So through a bunch of circuitous events that I won't bore you with, I end up being someone that is going to represent him along with this very famous lawyer. And I'm brought in because I have alleged knowledge and expertise in DNA because of working, doing my work with the Innocence Project. Yeah. So at a time where, so at a time where he wants me to be paying more attention to his case, I'm in Florida and, and, another armpit (laughs) (laughs) so i'm in i'm in florida working on getting this guy out of jail that has been wrongfully accused working on getting him off of death row so i said to ike you know you the case is in the news you should follow the case your case is years down the road so he started following the case and i walked him off of death row his name is clementia geary shorty was his nickname so I called me the day that we got him out and said, before you come, before you go back to New York, I want you to drive to Palm Beach. And I had dinner with him and his wife. And he said, you know, if I didn't have resources, I could have ended up just like that guy. And I was like, well, I don't think you'd end up on death row. For Not <laughs> sending death row, hate but mail. you never but, know. And now here was a guy that, and he like, he had a tear in his eye. And he's like, what can I do to help? So when it came time for Trump to start issuing pardons and clemency, he said to me, I want you to give me the name of someone, one person. I want to help you save a life. Wow. That's why that's how I had dinner with Trump. Yeah. And that is how we saved the life together. So for every and now this guy, Ike Perlmutter and his wife have become literally like surrogate parents to me. They have, ju- they have just pledged a fortune to start a new, um, I was in the running to be executive director of a new legal, legal justice center at Cardozo, not a Cardozo, where the Innocence Project started. And when I got the position, um, they said, we're going to fund it for 10 years. Oh my and it's, gosh. And it's going to be called the Perlmutter Center for Legal Justice. We literally just finished the paperwork and we're going to do like a big formal announcement. So it was, it's such a lesson that, you know, if we keep on, I don't want to sound at the risk of sounding like a corny douche. You don't sound like a corny douche. Well, it's like, there's nothing about it that sounds corny or douchey. If we keep on using like reasons not to sit across the table or find common ground with people we disagree with, then tell me where that 
tell me how good you do in three years or five years. You're going to fucking run in place. We're already and seeing met- the detriment of that. We're already seeing the result of that, the segregation that we're creating ourselves as a society. It is. It is. It's, it's, it's wild. You know, I always say to myself when it comes to anything, I'm, I'm pretty middle of the road with everything. And the one thing I know for sure is I don't know anything for sure. And I keep myself curious, not furious. That's what keeps me in a place where I can learn and, and try to be someone who can, you know, hopefully help or be in a position to make someone's day better. And so many people, a majority of people live the opposite way. And it's so much more exhausting. It really is. You know, people would, I can even imagine people who would be like, well, leave that guy on death row. He's not worth anything. You're with Trump. Like they would, they're so focused on their allegiance to something instead of justice. And that's where we've really gone wrong. Man, you stopped me dead in my tracks. I was like, is that um, bad? No, in a, in like the best way possible. It was like curious, not furious. I yeah, someone like, said that, and it stuck with me. I'm gonna steal that. I think it was my so, my, my therapist. It's so smart. It's so um, simple, and it's really it comes down to that because curiosity comes from a place of love and acceptance, and and fury comes from a place of anger and fear. And and we yeah, were, no, it's so true, so true. You know, I want to ask you um, a question. I kind of want to go back, but if you do, do you want to, do you have to finish your thought? Is there anything else you want to touch on this? No, I, I cut you off and my therapist tells me that's one of the things I got to stop doing. So that's no, why it's okay. I stopped. It's okay. I accept you for who you are. <laughs> I want to go way back and ask a question that maybe you may or may not know the answer to. Now, when I think of the legal system and the justice systems taking a shift. I don't know a lot about it. All I know is how I've watched it on TV. And when I say that, I think of, of OJ, the OJ Simpson trial, that being like one of the first documented incidences that uh, incidents that made it to trial. Do you think, how do you think that trial changed the system and the way, you know, people were, watching the way maybe pressure was put on cases and and also how was that trial different and how did that trial affect sort of the you know race that is involved in the in the justice system because OJ was a black man but when you think about the class involved he was a rich black man so i guess my question is from your standpoint did that have an effect and how and what kind of effect did that have on race in the justice system, if any? Um, that's a really difficult question, mm. I got to tell you, because, you know, there have been more documentaries and, you know, books written about that trial, I'd venture to say, than any um, any case in modern history. Yeah. But I do think I, I remember. um there was a great documentary recently about it. Um, and I forget what it was called, but it was the latest one that I think was on Netflix, mm. something made in America. Yes. OJ Simpson. Mm-hmm. Right? And I, I think it was on that series where someone said, you know, look, 
I, I have to be real careful about what I say. Um, the co-founders of the Innocence Project were on his legal team. They used it as an opportunity to get very um, wide exposure to something that was a passion of theirs beforehand, which was using science to prove people's innocence. Mm. So people can have their disagreements about whether he was guilty or innocent. I have my own personal beliefs about it. But I remember like one of the talking heads on Made in America saying, you know, from all of the cases that it was pretty clear there was no justice when, you know, from Rodney King to, you know, a whole litany of cases in California and across the country when you know, a person of color was clearly wronged and the system treated them like our society treats them, which is like shit. Throwaways. Uh, yeah, like throwaways. I mean, I think that um, that, that was a, a flashpoint and a reckoning that, you know, we're not, if you, unless you've got surveillance and you got a white cop using that nasty fucking word in that context, um, that guy Furman, and you have, you know, just questions. Unless you got surveillance, we're acquitting. We're not letting you ruin another black life. Mm. Whether you whether you agree or disagree with the verdict, it was about race. It was. Um, and you know, I think as to how it changed. Look, we're complicated and messy as human beings, right? Mm -hmm. Like the way we think, the way we act. I all, the only thing I know, Jess and May. I know that a lot of my clients in this space are, are black and brown, and I don't think that there was a conscious effort to frame them. I don't. I, that was like something that I thought early on. But I do know that there is a subconscious, maybe in some instances conscious, um, feeling amongst law enforcement that they're good for it because they are black or brown mm. and I will assume because what I a big mistake I made early on and Barry Sheck was like the first person to point it out to me and I was going after the, this is my, my client John Restivo he did 18 years for a rape and murder he didn't commit oh my god and this was his civil rights trial against the, the police officers that framed him and they straight up framed him they took one of the victim's hairs and put it in his van. Um, and I, I thought that, and he was a white guy, but I, I was like really going after the cop. And Barry said to me, you know, you don't have to demonize the cop because oftentimes what's happening is that they're working on a hunch and they think their hunch is right. Then they use, they backfill that hunch. Right. So in other words, they reverse engineer an outcome based on their bias. Which is so, so fucked. So fucked. So fucked. It's so, not rooted in science. It's rooted in conjecture, which is a court word. You're fucking welcome. Yeah. Thank you. For another one that I'll steal. Conjecture. Not facts. Conjecture. Your honor. My biological clock is ticking. <laughs> <laughs> I'm practically a fuck. I'm an attorney. You need help? 
I'll show up in a suit. I will show up in a suit. <laughs> I can see you tossing out Greek words. <laughs> Ibid, Your Honor. Ibid. <laughs> the hubris in this room is really alarming. <laughs> That's like my dad calls me like super stone one night. I'm Amicus <laughs> Curie. Mikis Curie. So what? Mikis Curie, Josh. What's it mean? What's it mean? What's it all mean? <laughs> it's like, have you ever said to a judge, Mikis Curie? It means friend of the court. Friend of the court. <laughs> Say, listen, fucking Jerry Costanza. Uh, no, I've never stood up and blurted out some Latin shit to a judge. <laughs> I don't know what it means. But yeah, I think that. Um, I know I know that there are some cases where they like I have the guy Shorty. Yeah. You know, and he was a hot he was a, I mean his his life story is like you know, like I, I'm getting like optional op, option offers for the rights to his life story left and right. And he's like fucking guy swims across the Rio Grande naked to to try to get to America is like, because they'd make you take your clothes off. Cause if you get to the other side and you're like wet and the customs officers are chasing you, you're going to run slower. He goes through, he, he, he swims through a fucking river of shit to get to America is in a trap door in a safe house and Jesus. coyotes take him. He makes it to Florida to try to find the American dream. He finds the fucking American horror story. It's wrongly accused of a crime he didn't commit. And the first thing they say to him is, I mean, his two neighbors got butchered to death. One of them, 129 stab wounds. Guy's got no motive. It turns out that the daughter um, That sounds has passionate. That's a that passionate, passionate murder. See, see even, even, even a comic, a sharp-witted comic like you knows that when that's a 129 stab That's wounds. That's my ex-boyfriend. He deserved every one of those. And an and, and extra one in the in the coffin. Ka-ka. That's not fucking conjecture. That's not That's conjecture. Those are That's fucking fact. facts. That's passionate facts. That's so <laughs> passionate so they, facts will not be at Coachella. <laughs> oh, they canceled? They canceled. Uh, yeah, one of their uh, one of their band members got convicted of a crime. He didn't or did commit. <laughs> But so, so when they're questioning him, you know, the, one of the women was like in her sixties or seventies. The other one was all cracked up. Like, like, you know, she was crackish. She was like, you know, they were like drug addicts. They were living in a trailer park on a road. This is not conjecture. This is not, they lived this on is science. It, they lived on a road, on a road called Vagabond Way. You can't make this shit up. And he, they go, come on. We know how you, the cops start talking to him. He comes to them and tells them, hey, I went in there last night at six in the morning to get a beer because he'd been partying all day and night, you know, he'd been partying. Mm -hmm. And uh, it was like a dorm setting. They would go in back and forth to each other's trailer and he finds these dead bodies and he tells the police that he found them. They immediately start accusing him. And they're like, come on, we know how you Latin guys are. You went over there for sex. And he's like, so it happens. The one, the one thing I know, the constant, is that um, black people get convicted at a higher rate. Um, they get sentenced at an alarmingly 
um, increased rate. They, you know, we jail people in this country. I, I hate when people fling stats out there. We imprison people in America. This is one that I that I, I can't ever help myself. It's six times the rate. Of the rest of the world, than, right? Than, no, than South Africa did at the height of apartheid. Oh, Jesus. All right. So, you know, there's just, there's a reckoning that happened a couple of years ago. It's like, I call it the summer of white guilt. And everybody like it's like oh I like I like black people and I, Black Lives Matter yeah where Gap and, you and know, all the companies like, started to act like they cared yeah all of a sudden where the where the fuck have you been where have you been and for thirty years forty yeah, years yeah where are you now because it's so popular it's, like, it's it it becomes popular to be a part of the cause so I just feel like you have to you have to accept that maxim as true. And so how did it, you know, I think one takeaway from the OJ case is like, this is, it was like a a long, I was going to say a long, loud message. It was a, it was a message to the world, to prosecutors, like this race, um, part of the equation is real. And it sometimes works the opposite way. So for those of you that thought OJ was guilty, okay, well, there's, you know, like a lot, I think one of those talking heads said this was payback. This was payback for for Rodney King, and it was payback for, you know, all of the other atrocities that are committed against black people. And that, those jurors said, not on our watch. And whether you agree with it, disagree with it, it, it definitely was some sort of flashpoint. I don't know what significance to attach to it, but it definitely changed it was, a lot. It changed yeah. the way they approached a crime scene, the crime scene investigation, the how they walk through. I mean, it was like a bunch of bulls in China in the China shop. The way they treated that crime scene, it was just. You know what, Jesse May? Though I'm a you would I'm think- a lawyer. Is that what? No, oh, okay. no. You okay. would think you would you would think that um, this is challenging for me because I want to like keep up with your no quick stay wit. your course. You're, it's I, good, and I want I want to like I want to flex my comedic muscle. Don't but, don't. I'm enjoying right. it falling dead in the room. <laughs> you're like I'm you're enjoying like, it just bouncing oh. off of you and rolling on the floor. Is this is this payback? Talk about payback. Send, is this payback for me, bartender? I would send Joe. I would send Joe bits. Text them, and I, and then it would be dead silence. And you'd be, I'd be like, dude, any reaction? He's like, yeah, it sucked. <laughs> <laughs> so I can take it. But you would think what you said is true. It changed the way people. Man, I have a case where they took 150 swabs of blood. This is the same case I was just telling you about. This guy, Clemente Aguirre. It was a violent stabbing. This didn't happen in 1995. This happened in 2004. The woman stabbed 129 times. They're swabbing blood at the scene. Not because they want to know whose blood it is. They know that it's her blood. But they swab for blood at the scene because what happens in a violent knife attack, especially when someone is stabbed that often, is the assailant often cuts themselves. Right. 
the knife slips in their hand, they get cut on the blade on the handle or defensive wounds. So that, you know, the crime scene analyst admitted that's what she's swabbing for. So, okay, meticulous job in some respects. On her hands and knees in the shit stinking fucking Florida humidity in a trailer in the sun, in the dead of summer for eight days. Oh my God. So you know how many drops of that blood, how many of those swabs were sent off for testing? Fucking zero. Why? Not one. Why? Because they had their guy. So what guy? What when, fuck? Is, oh, because they, oh, they had the guy. They thought they had their guy. So what happens how, is- How do you still inter- not do that? How do you, isn't that diligence? Still, it's just- they, This was in 2006. Time. This is- 2004. When was they, OJ? Because, 10 years earlier? Yeah, they had tunnel vision. So what happened? When the Innocence Project got the case, how I got involved, we, te- we sent it out for testing. He had these appointed counsel, local counsel, not local counsel, his, his attorneys that were appointed to represent him when he was on death row, two, two of my fucking heroes, right? Mari Palmer and Maria Deliberato, fucking superstars, got the Innocence Project involved. We sent it out for testing. This is before I even got involved in the case. And the blood, wouldn't you know that within inches of the mother's blood in the bathroom, where the state claimed the killer cleaned up, within inches of the mother's blood is the daughter's blood. Mm. So come to find Where'd that, that bitch daughter, at? that that bitch is on the on the loose. Watch this. Watch this. She we did an investigation. She had confessed. She had confessed all over fucking town. Drunk, not drunk, on drugs, not on drugs. She had confessed all over town that she did it. We had 14 separate confessions. So at, at the retrial, I, I was his lead counsel. At the retrial, I had her on the witness stand. They ended up dropping the charges like three days after in the middle of the retrial. Um, and I basically had like that moment where I got the real killer to confess. Whoa. She said that she... She like blacks out, chills. and so so I don't know well, what she blacks out and murders. How convenient! She, well, what happened was like I I said to her, "Why do you threaten to kill people?" She said, "I, I I've never done that in my life." I said, "You haven't." Watch this video of her in the back of a cop car going to a cop. Her words, not mine. I'm gonna fucking murder you. I'm gonna fucking murder you. And I'd be like, what was up with that? Who was that? She she ultimately came up with, well, I black out. And I got her to admit, so you commit acts of violence and you block them out or black out. But so you can't say whether or not you killed your mother um, and grandmother and blocked it out. I'm like, I had all kinds of shit. There There was a blood swipe on the mother's ass. Um, the one that was stabbed 129 times because she was obviously re- reaching for the door. And whoever did this reached to pull her back and had blood on their hands. And there was like the pants were pulled down partially because they were trying to pull her back. And it always f- f- fucked me up. Why only three fingers? Because she was holding the knife. 
What? I would dip my I would dip my fingers in wine and red wine and run it across. The thumb would never show up because it's off to the side, but the pinky would always show up. While I had her on the witness stand, I wanted to take a picture of her hands to see if there was any cuts. And she goes like this. I said, put your hand up. And she goes like this. That bitch is missing a pinky. That's some hillbilly shit. Was she missing a pinky? <laughs> I said, what's up with your pinky? She said, I cut it off. I said, you cut it off? It was reattached and it was stuck in this position. I said, you cut it off when? She goes, when I was 14. And they reattached it. I said, and was it stuck in that position on the night that your mother and grandmother emerged? She said, it was. And I, I looked at the prosecutor and I said, right in the middle of the, I said, have you seen enough? It, it was crazy. It was, it was. I am on the edge of my seat riveted. I truly, women love, we love this stuff. Not not to exploit it, but literally it's baffling. This girl stabbed her own family over a hundred times. So what, so what happened is you said, where that bitch at? Yeah. She's in Kentucky. The fuck is she doing in Kentucky? So watch this. when they dropped the charges against him, I said to the judge, can I say something? It's all on video for your, for your sharp I would, tongue. I would, I would love a clip listeners. of that. I'll make it a Patreon content. She, um, I don't know what caused me to do this. This was not planned. What was planned is that I was going to say something. And I, I said something on Clemente's behalf. And then he said something. But when I said something, I said, I started to talk and the prosecutor stood up and said, you know, your honor, I, we got to end this. He, and the judge said, I'm sorry, this has been going on for 14 years. I'm going to let Mr. Dubin speak. And I said, I, I, I say to, I like, it was some like deep oratory. I, I like went, I went there. I said, I, I, I say to all assembled here today, there's a killer on the run. I, I conjured up Jim Morrison. I said, "There's a killer." I said, "There's a killer on the Don't run." Don't start joking now. I'm, I'm, I'm in and this she, moment. Don't you ruin this for me? I said, "There's a killer on the run." She's in Kentucky. The state of Florida knows where she is. They brought her to this courtroom to testify. I, I, I want them to go get her and bring her to justice. To this day, she's still wandering the streets, doing whatever the fuck it is people do because they can't bring themselves to admit that they made a mistake and that they were wrong. This happens a lot. It's so fucking frustrating. And unfortunately we have to wrap up because I have a a meeting I have to get to and I want to talk to you. I wish I would have booked a much longer time um, because I want to talk to you more, but before we can do it again, we can do it again. We can do a part two. If you have time, we'll figure it out and come back on. And, you know, I have so many other questions that I've written down that I didn't even get to. Um, But in this part one conclusion, where can people, if they want to support, if they want to be a part of the cause, um, you know, if they want to, you know, be able to help maybe with the Innocence Project or anything else that you're involved with, where can they donate their time, efforts, money? Um. There's there's two places or three places that I would that I would point you to. One is you know the Innocence Project luckily has a lot of support at this point. 
not that we can't always use more. I would direct you to the Midwest Innocence Project, mm. which is one of our Innocence Projects that is run by this amazing woman, Trisha Bushnell, um, who is just a force of nature, was my co-counsel on the Ron Torres Washington case. Um, that's one place. Um, the Sean Carter Foundation, um, which is Jay-Z's organization, um, we are starting a program um, with his their students that are going to be college students, and we help pay. I help pay with Jay Z for their college education. Wow! And most of them, most of them are interested in criminal justice reform, and that program starts soon. And we can always, I mean, like I believe the children are future. So I, I do believe like these these young promising college students, the Sean Carter Foundation like flies under the radar and, you know, contributing to young minds that can help make a difference going forward. Um, and especially young minds that are people of color that deserve to be the ones helping make the difference. Yes. Um, and then, you know, I would also say that the New Orleans Innocence Project is another place that does remarkable work. Robert Jones, who I had on the last Rogan episode with me, mm -hmm. um, is, an, is an exoneree and does amazing work down there. So those are three places that I'd look to. And then maybe we can give you information for how to donate to the Perlmutter Center for Legal Justice once we launch yes. in the fall. Please give me all the information. I'll, I'm going to include what you just mentioned in the show notes for anybody listening, if you guys want to be a part of the um, better side of history and helping people be able to live their lives out the way so many of us do and take for granted. Uh, I really thank you so much for your time. We're going to have to do a part two. Like I said, let's do it. Um, it's so good to see your face and nice to see your face. You, I, whatever you're, you're doing, keep, keep doing it. You have an age. Thank you. the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.